This episode of Straight Up was recorded in March 2015 and features Ali Karib from The Nation, Murtaza Hussein from The Intercept, and me, Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, discussing terrorism, ISIS, and Islamophobia. So the big story recently in terms of Islamophobia, terrorism, was this arrest of the, the three Brooklyn guys, two of whom were actually apparently planning to go to fight with ISIS, one who was kind of a fixer trying to set it up. Three Brooklyn men are under arrest, two of them charged with planning to fight for ISIS either in Syria or, if that failed, here in the United States. When you saw the story break, what was your first like gut reaction to it? Well, I guess the first thing is you saw the headlines which said a Brooklyn ISIS plot and it sounded very sensational. And this was, what does this mean? Like, it sounds like a really serious terrorism case. And then we started unpacking the actual criminal complaint and it looked like it was actually nothing like that. It was a couple of guys, one teenager, one early 20s young guy in Brooklyn, who were posting things online. And then all of a sudden, an informant shows up at their house and starts, uh, you know, goading them into creating a plot. And over seven months, they try to cultivate these guys into something that they can arrest. And the underlying thing is there, was, there were no condition to travel anywhere or conduct any plot before this informant showed up. Right. I mean, I think the criminal complaint that the feds filed suggests that uh, after this one guy posted stuff on, I think, a social media website, yeah. right, about s some affinity with ISIS, federal agents showed up at his house, and they had, like, a very interesting, yeah. rather unguarded conversation. So this guy showed up at... Uh, 24-year-old house, he'd been posting things on Uzbek social media about, you know, supporting ISIS. And the FBI agent comes and says, well, I heard you're supporting ISIS. And he said, yeah, I support ISIS. And he's like, <laughs> and then he was like, uh, going more, he's like, yeah, I would kill Obama totally if I had the opportunity. You just to have no yeah, means he, to do he that. he had posted something about, about like, shooting Obama, yeah, like shoot some, some off-the-cuff yeah. comment. You know, my first reaction was, where's the entrapment, right? Because that's how these cases usually end up happening. And that, that set me off, too, that, that he like confirmed to the FBI that he wanted to kill Obama. Yeah. And then some guy shows up and says, hey, I can, I can help you fight yeah, for ISIS. Yeah. And he just dives right into it. He turned in, uh, or he named uh, an associate, the second person who yeah. arrested, who I think the reason he wasn't able to travel at first was that his mom had like seized his passport. So this informant befriends the 19-year-old as well, too. And over the course of these months, he helps him make travel documents so he can go to join ISIS. He watches ISIS videos with him. But this goes to your initial skepticism, right? That's, this is a theme through a lot of these post-9-11 terrorism prosecutions, is the role of the, the informant, the confidential informant. Right. And it, also the dim-witted culprit. I mean, I guess one question is, you know, what's the line between having some affinity, some support for a terrorist group, you know, sympathizing with them as some Irish people sympathize with the IRA, and actually supporting them in a way that is illegal. I mean, that line's kind of shifted, right? There, there was a really great article about this in the Times Magazine that, that you know, talked about how if you wanted to join a kind of terrorist group from the advent of 20th century terrorism, basically all the way up through the early 2000s, if you wanted to join Al-Qaeda, there's a pretty clear, like, threshold that you've, like, passed the point where... Now you are part of this terrorist group, and it's tough to get there, and it takes some effort, and you get there, and you're definitively there. And it's not just sort of this murky area of, you know, supporters and people that hit like on Facebook and write crazy things on message boards. And now, because of the way uh, the Internet has showed up on this jihadi scene, and especially the way ISIS is such a smash hit on the Internet, you know, their propaganda videos and their web presence, and, like, we've seen other groups do it, you know, Shabab, the Somalian terrorist group, mm -hmm. with their Twitter account, like famously trolls everybody on Twitter. 
But nobody's quite done it like ISIS, the way they have this incredible online appeal. And that's partly because of the very, you know, I, I hesitate to say splashy because it's pretty horrific, but the splashy things that they do, like, <laughs> you know, making YouTube videos of cutting people's heads off and burning them alive. So they get all this attention, and it's just so easy to hit that like button or to, like, toss off some sentence, and the next thing you know, you're a member of ISIS. This online communities that are being raised, it really blurs the line of, of who are the people who are, who are just kind of these dim-witted or, you know, like, mentally unstable people, young people who are looking for direction who latch on to these things versus the actual members of the group who are dangerous. And I think that a few of these examples we're talking about are, as Murtaz I said before, you see them in the headlines as this is an ISIS plot, but it's not always so clear that that's what was going on. When you're talking about, you know, Islamophobia, terrorism, the media's role in covering it is something that I know we've all looked at. Do you think that that has evolved at all over the years? We had September 11th and the initial furor, and then you know a lot of plots, a lot of different sort of cycles of fear since then. Is the media any better at, at covering this stuff now than they used to be? Does, is it wrong to talk about the media en masse when we're discussing this? I think generally they've become slightly more nuanced since 9-11 because that was just the original events. They didn't know what to make of this at all. And I think that for the most part, of course you cannot talk about the media en masse and they're still outliers, but they don't reflexively attribute everything to Muslims or Islam per se. I don't know if you have a different perspective. That's how I I mean, I think that you can talk about certainly like right of center media, which includes some of you know this broad category of mainstream media is mm -hmm. pretty much down the line has gotten more and more Islamophobic and you know that it actually has taken some time to gain steam and I think in part because George W. Bush for as terrible as he was actually was alright on this right he said that like this is not a war against no, Islam like and, and it tempered things and it took a while for these things to gain steam I mean the, the hardcore Islamophobes were were always there you know, a lot of them came out of the pro-Israel right, which has sort of an institutional Islamophobia, but they weren't necessarily, like, persistently there in the media. The Fox News people weren't well-versed enough that at every turn they would latch on to this stuff. And that's become the case where, like, what used to be a few right-wing, right, fringe right-wing Islamophobic blogs have sort of, their, like, talking points are all over Fox News on prime time, you know, the most watched cable news network. Right. And so I think you do see a lot of that. But I, I think Murtaza is right that in general, when you talk about the media at large, there is a lot more nuance and people are more careful about it. But it still exists, and I do think it's it it has, like, within those parts of the media... It's been a very strongly developed niche, which is, like, all about that now. Yeah. Whereas everyone else is kind of, like, you know, temper things a little bit. But yeah, Fox News has like become totally like I guess they were always a bit unhinged, but now. Well, <laughs> do they still knows. use uh, Islamofascism as a term, or has that I lost? I guess do certainly. Right. And, and like you know the the crazies like this guy uh, Steve Emerson, this fraud of a terrorism expert who they had on, who said that uh, non-Muslims aren't allowed to go into Birmingham, England, and you know had to apologize, and Fox apologized for it too. Like. And that's another thing, like, people get ca called out for it. It's sort of remarkable that some right-wing pundit right, right. apologize. Like, and that right. happens because there's this other sort of more reasonable, more centrist and liberal media that will call BS on that. In terms of recent coverage, either of the, the Brooklyn arrests or other stuff, what sort of stands out in your mind as um, 
the low point of journalism. For me, around the Brooklyn case, it was the kind of inevitable New York Post editorial about how this kind of ratifies and justifies the, they called it the Muslim mapping program that the NYPD did. That, you know, if you go and photograph mosques and delis and stuff to know where they are going to be, right. able to stop them. And to me, it, it didn't really follow logically because if the Brooklyn guys were serious, uh, and there's some doubt about that, you know, they, they made their intentions clear in social media and right. in a pretty easy interview with an FBI agent. Yeah. And if they weren't serious, then it doesn't prove anything. So for me, the, the kind of low light was the... I kind of think post. that was just an excuse for those NYPD guys to go and eat, like, delicious Uzbek kebab <laughs> in, in <laughs> That would be understandable. You know, yeah. yeah. I guess it's the reflexive credulity which is offered to these cases. Like, they haven't developed a skepticism reflectively, which maybe we have from looking at every case. And they have no incentive to do it. When you first saw it, it was on national news, NBC, everywhere, Brooklyn, ISIS plot. It was like, oh my God, this is like some of all fears right now. And like within a very little cursory analysis of it, it all fall, fell apart. So I mean, like, I guess the incentive is just to pump it up because that's what gets ratings and that's what people gets People watch it. People, yeah, people watch eat, it. Eat that so talking about the media and covering uh, Islamophobia and terrorism, worst headline, craziest thing, worst speech you've seen in the past two or three weeks? Well, with, you know, like with the Brooklyn ISIS thing, we had this other thing in the past couple weeks that was Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, came to give this speech to Congress about basically how we should be attacking Iran. And in it, he compared ISIS and Iran. One calls itself the Islamic Republic, the other calls itself the Islamic State. Both want to impose a militant Islamic empire, first on the region and then on the entire world. Which will, you know, come as a big surprise to the Iranians who are on the ground in Iraq fighting against ISIS, their mortal enemies. You know, Iran is a, is a Shia Muslim country and ISIS is a Sunni Muslim extremist group and they cut off the heads of Shia. So, right. I mean, the comparison is like totally ridiculous on its face and it just goes to show how, you know, even at like the very heights of our political system and the hallowed heights of, uh, hallowed halls of Congress, how like messed up the way we talk about these things uncritically can be. What's your least favorite? A few weeks ago, there's a story of these British girls, 16 year olds who went and traveled to join ISIS. Mm -hmm. And there's something about women and Islamic extremism which seems to push all the most sensational buttons. There was a British newspaper, the headline was like in pink, Secret Life of a Caliphate. Like, E-T-T-E. <laughs> oh, Jesus. There's a lot of fear-mongering, but there is, there is some real fear underneath it. And I think in the last five, maybe ten years, it's been about this, this you know, the homegrown terrorist, not the guy who gets in a plane from Saudi Arabia and shows up here to do something bad, but someone who was raised here, perhaps born here, and you know, there, and so I think when you talk about Herald Square, these three guys in Brooklyn, you know, the other plots, this is what is being played into. But there have been some cases where we've we've sort of seen that, right? I mean, Boston Marathon is one. You had the guy who drove his SUV into Times Square. Mm -hmm. The Fort Hood shooting is one that I don't know a lot about. But you know, is the homegrown threat like a, a real threat? And how do we separate the real threat from some of these cases that? They haven't really reflected that. I think there's always going to be some baseline level of terrorism in society. There always is like some threat of terrorism, and something we don't think about too much. But we're in a state of perpetual war all the time. Like for 14 years now, we've been at war, 
And the majority of people, when they do these attacks, the reason, at least some tangentially reason, is to give the site those wars. And it's just a natural byproduct of that. So we don't engage with it much, because most people don't serve in the military. We don't see the effects of it. But you know, those, these are, this is a natural result of that. And we'll never totally eliminate terrorism completely. And to do that, you have to completely live in a police state, which I don't think anyone would want to do. So I think that we should have a sane, healthy sort of you know, estimation of what the threat is, which on rational analysis is not that great. And even these homegrown guys, mostly buffoonish, a lot of times informant involved, trying to drum it up. And once in a while, there are legitimate things which you know, security services have tools to deal with. And we don't... Uh, but look, even some of those are going to get through, right? I mean, that's the thing. Perfect yeah. security is an illusion, especially in free societies. Mm -hmm. Like, there are just some, some barriers that you can't cross. And there's always going to be crime. There's going to be terrorism. And you do what you can with these law enforcement tools to try and stop these things. Right. And we have a healthy, like, view of, like, murders in America. We, like, just sort of, like, this is the level we live with it. It's not real good. Well, we try, healthy. We try to do a healthy. Healthy, level. I mean, there are, like, <laughs> but I mean, like, there are things that we, that we could do about it. That we could do about it, but we don't. Right, but, like, right. yeah, I mean, in general, we, there's, like, it's, like, it's not, not like, this hysteria. Right, hysteria. So. What is homegrown terror? What does that mean? What does it mean to be home? I would say terrorism, which has not been directed by an organization based abroad, and the idea for it was you know, generated here. Like the Boston Marathon guys, there's no indication that they were directed by anyone, any group like mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda or anything else. It was something they cooked up in their living room or in their bedroom. So I think that's a fair definition of homegrown, even if it was inspired to some degree by events elsewhere. Yeah, and I mean, and, and this is part of the diffuse, like, world of the of, that includes the internet, right? Like, it's easy enough to go and read something on the internet that makes you say, we should blow up this bomb at the Boston Marathon, and then you go to another website and you find instructions for making a pressure cooker into a bomb filled with ball bearings and nails. Right. And then you go do it. And so I think that that's, I think that's pretty right. I mean, it's like, you know, another word that gets used a lot is the lone wolf terrorist. Right. Like, it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, I think that really speaks to what we were saying before, that it's just, that it's going to be impossible to stop all of them. It's just not going to happen because as long as you've got a free society, people are going to have access to this information. People are going to be inspired to do really messed up things, and people are going to have the means to acquire the knowledge to do them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, getting back to, to where we started with the Brooklyn ISIS plot, I mean, that's part of what's so enraging about the way this plot was blown up in the headlines, is that these were, these were two guys who really didn't have the, like, couldn't put the pieces together, right? right? Like, it still requires some effort, and it's something that they can do on their own, but they weren't able to put those pieces together and act in any way, and they straight up told the FBI that. Right. Right, like, if you really wanted to make an attempt on Obama's life, but these guys were just saying it with no idea how they were going to get there, or really so even FBI, any evidence that, the they were, yeah, yeah, yeah. that they were even really thinking seriously about it. It's got to go down in that FBI agent's whole life history as the greatest and easiest interview he's ever yeah. had. Funniest thing to me, he had to come back three days later just to confirm, did you really say that? <laughs> like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> and what's, what's maddening, too, is that those guys didn't kill anybody and probably right. could never have killed anybody, right, even right. if they made it to Syria. Right. Whereas you had this incident in North Carolina, really roughly around the same time of the right, shooting right. in the housing complex with some question about whether that was motivated by a parking dispute or by anti-Islamic sentiment. What do you think about coverage of anti-Islamic violence, which has perhaps been more real, and to what extent you know, the media coverage of the other stuff feels that? Is, that? is that something the media can be hit on to? 
So, I mean, terrorism, the reason it comes instinctively to a huge story is that it's memory of September 11th, which is like the ultimate news story of our generation. And it seems to trigger that same muscle memory when these stories happen. So it almost feels like every, even a Boston bombing, which was, you know, on scale far smaller, it just, because of the fact it resonates in that way, they'll report it almost as though it's the next 9-11. That would be the first reflex. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think there's something to be said about juxtaposing the, the coverage, you know, there's, and, and we should all be very careful, in, in, and in some of these cases, you know, every time something happens, the Islamophobes come out and say, this was the Muslims, right? But sometimes that's borne out, right? Like, at the marathon bombings, you had people come out and say that, and it turned out that they were right, but that doesn't mean that they should come out and say it before they know what the facts are. We always got to be careful about this stuff, but it was really interesting to watch the, watch the North Carolina case, because here was an incident that, you know, at least we know that the guy had anti-religious sentiment, even if his attack wasn't motivated primarily by anti-Muslim sentiment. We know that he had anti-religious sentiment, and yet people were, like, jumping through hoops to prove right off the bat that this was not motivated by anti-Muslim animus, you know? Like, right. I guess anti-Muslim animus is redundant. But that, like, the people really worked hard and fast to prove this thing which is just like a, the, the total opposite approach, right? Where it, with the terrorism cases, you take the default as they're Muslims and then you have to prove that it wasn't. Right. And with these ones, the default is like, no, it's not motivated by Islamophobia and we'll wait for evidence that maybe it was. So before I was a real journalist and I could also be a real activist, I, I went to some you know, anti-Iraq war meetings and everyone thought I was a cop. And this was a room full of white well, Christian people. Have you looked at a mirror recently? Right, exactly. I didn't, I didn't blame them. But obviously, it has occurred to me that if I were to walk into a mosque, I would really look like a cop. So I wonder, you know, given the level of distrust in communities about informants, about, you know, just, you know, reporters who are going to sort of twist their words, do you feel like having some ethnic or religious tie to folks helps you to cover this, helps you to get into these communities and find out what people are talking about? even helps to talk to people who are accused of or guilty of terrorism? I think certainly with people who are, you know, guilty or have been accused of terrorism, it does help because maybe they think that this person will understand the terms I'm arguing a bit more. And I think I've found it helps people open up a bit more, so more so than maybe they would someone who's objectively foreign to them. With the context of informants, I think people suspect, you know, Muslim-looking people or sounding people of being informants now, too. It's not even the white guy might be even more, like, you know, they wouldn't be so obvious. They might have someone else. Right. Who, yeah, it's sort of that thing where it's like, this guy would never, right, exactly. like, this guy would never try and come, come and be on, a here looking, right, right, right. looking like that, you know? <laughs> but I think it does, it does help to an extent, you know, like, that if you just show up and can look like you belong, mm -hmm. it, it helps a lot. And then, in my case, like, it's a little bit strange because I come from this Muslim background, but I'm not a believer myself. So, like, my name and the fact that my family has an Iranian background can help, but if we really get to talking, like, I won't, I, I, I wouldn't really BS people. I mean, I guess if, like, if I was reporting in Iraq and, like, ISIS came and grabbed me and was like, are you a Muslim? I'd be like, yes, I'm a Muslim, I believe. <laughs> Allahu Akbar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Shia is the bad one there. So this is not an abstract issue for, for any of us, but especially for, you know, there's a, a huge Arab Muslim community maybe a couple miles from here. Mm. And, you know, they have watched what's going on in their home countries. They've seen anti-Islamic violence here. And they know that the NYPD had this program to watch where they eat and to put informants in their mosques. Have you 
done any reporting? Have you been able to get into that community and find out, you know, how are people feeling now about the level of trust and, and distrust in their community? There is a huge level of distrust. I mean, you know, there was this ACLU case that was brought a couple years ago by Muslims who were spied on by the mm -hmm. NYPD. And this is a guy who basically ran a charity for helping poor people in the Muslim community get meals. And so he raised money and he did this. And there was actually an NYPD informant who followed him from one charity, which he was at, and then they found out that there were police surveilling them. And so the charity basically had to go defunct, right? All the board members were like, we don't want a part of this. Like, who can blame somebody for being distrustful of the authorities in that case? Do you think it's changed at all with de Blasio being mayor? Uh, he talked during the campaign, at least, and there's been some indication since taking office well, they, that he they, was going to alter... They shut down the mapping unit. Right. But that the demographic unit. Yeah, the demographics unit. But that, yeah, really Orwellian name, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that those activities are going to cease. It's just that there ceases being a dedicated unit for it. I mean, you know... Part of the problem is the NYPD is such an island unto itself that we've seen this with the sort of uh, anti-police brutality issue that's come up with, with Ferguson and Eric Gardner and all these things. These guys are not afraid to assert their turf and to take on a mayor. So, you know, who knows what's going on behind the scenes of this, of this really insular organization that is the NYPD. Like, those activities of Muslim surveillance could very well still be going on. It's definitely a step forward that they shut down the dedicated unit for it. But, you know, we just, we just don't know. I mean, you've got to remember that it took the Associated Press years to get those documents, and it was only because of a lucky leak that they mm -hmm. got that those reporters were able to, to do that series that ended up winning the Pulitzer. And God, I mean, you know, like it's entirely possible that this stuff could keep going on and we'll just, we'll never learn about it. Mm -hmm. I think anecdotally, people do believe it's still going on. Like the average yeah. person thinks it's going on and they assume they're being surveilled or under some sort of scrutiny. And like, you know, even if it theoretically it has stopped, which there's no indication it has really, it takes a long time for institutional distrust to be melded over. It takes generations. So right. I think the average person does believe that there are under surveillance and there's negative effects of that. Curious, do you feel like you're under surveillance? I mean, I worked in the Snowden documents, and I guess I'm a Muslim journalist working on these stories, so I assume that I am surveilled, so I encrypt my emails and all these things. I'd be very surprised if I wasn't, but I guess it's possible I'm not. But, Are you uh, wearing a disguise right now? <laughs> yeah, underneath here is my real face, actually. <laughs> so what do we do to counter uh, the mistakes we've made and, and the real sentiments that are out there? I think, I think you might have written about this. Um, that something we need to have is uh, an outlet for, for people to express what they're feeling without right. it being threatening so that they don't have to resort to you know, a kind of um, ham-handed plot to go to Syria and fight with ISIS. Uh, if you were making policy around this on the city or federal level, how do you, how do you prevent radicalization? How do, we, how do we fight ISIS either here or, or overseas? I'm glad I'm not a policymaker because I usually don't have to come up with these things. But if I can speak in really general terms, I mean, you know, like, like, look, I'm an American liberal. And I think that American liberalism, like when those values are applied properly, a lot of these problems take care of themselves. I mean, and I think that like things like spying on communities just for being Muslim is a violation of those values. And I think that when you do apply those values, it gives people faith in the system. And that the sort of I mean, this might be a little bit too in the clouds. I don't know. But. But like the, the, the ideas there prevail and they win. I mean, clearly I think they won because I believe them. And I, so I think that you've got to like stay true to that stuff throughout 
in kind of every policy decision that you make, you've got to think, how does this go with the broad values that we're trying to put on people? It's never going to be perfect security. It's not going to happen. There's always going to be bad people who do bad things. But you've got to work the system so that you can try and make the system work. Yeah, I totally agree. And look, if you have a system which is confident, strong, people, the vast majority of people will acclimatize to that. Whatever grievances they have can be accommodated by it. And if someone is expressing views, like people need to blow off steam sometimes, especially young people. That's not a security threat in and of itself, unless you make it into one necessarily. I think that I'm actually confident the way things are going now, more so than it was before. And I think that uh, Obama is pursuing policies which are potentially constructive. And I know it's not easy to make policies, you made, as you pointed out, but I think that uh, people don't have to... Glad we just get to criticize all the time. Right, right. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier. Much easier, yeah. Doesn't pay as well, though. No, not yet. Okay, so let's play a little word association game. I'm going to throw out words to each of you. You have two seconds to say what first comes to mind. If you fail to do that, you got to drink your drink. Um, so let's start with you. The first word is Islam. Okay, I'll take a drink. <laughs> no one got anything. That's good. That's, that's a good religious devotion. John McCain. Crazy. Republican. Tom Cotton. <laughs> good. Terrorist. ISIS. Mipsters. I don't even know what that means. Can I take a shot? Sure, yeah. Mipsters, I am told by my uh, cooler associate, that means a Muslim hipster. Is that right? Right. Are we yeah. familiar with this? There's a video of it, yeah. Oh man, are I'm you, so not... Are you one? Are you okay? I don't think that I have. It's a very expensive to be one, I think. So. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that internet-y, I guess. <laughs> Last word, surveillance. Wilson's. Very good, let's all drink. Cheers, right. guys. Cheers, guys. <laughs> Straight Up Podcast is produced by Megan Donis, Shrianka Ray, and Sasha Mathias, and is recorded on location at the Emerson Bar in Brooklyn. For more information, visit brickartsmedia.org.